put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're continuing our series called Deep Rest. We're taking a look at how God does, in fact, um, provide us a way. Uh, to be refreshed, that, it, that, that if we can recognize how we were designed, we can, in fact, um, be rested, rejuvenated, refreshed, uh, and not as distracted. We live lives where our culture is definitely not a culture of rest, and uh, we're a culture of distraction, we're a culture of exhaustion, we are a culture that drives ourselves, and uh, we're looking to find rest in all the things that can't give it. And as a result, most of us live our lives, um, you know, like we're a telephone, those little cell phones that simply can't get a charge, right? The charge is like 10% <laughs> at best. And uh, when we get down to about 2%, man, our lives really start falling apart. That's not the way God designed us to live, okay? God gave us um, a gift that He calls rest that, that um, we're unpacking over the course of this series. And, and part of that is this idea of Sabbath. And this morning, we're not going to get into a lot about Sabbath. In the next two weeks, we're going to get into that more. Next week, we're going to talk about how Sabbath relates to productivity. And then the final week of the series, we're actually going to talk about what a Sabbath actually looks like. Some of you have been wondering, we've been going through this whole series, like, man, when are we actually going to talk about a day off? Um, we'll get there, okay? But before we get there, we've got to talk about a lot of, of important things. Because here's the thing, you guys. Real rest is not found in, in physical rest. Real rest is not found in emotional rest. Real rest is found in spiritual rest. It's the foundation of all other kinds of rest. That's why you can be rested physically and still be restless and full of anxiety and still driven and, and uh, not refreshed, right? And so we're going to deal with the things that um, are attacking our souls, and then from there we're going to talk about how that spills out into the rest of our lives. All right, before I jump in, I want to reiterate there is an invitation on the table for you guys. You can join us here to uh, Tuesday night, 6.30. We're not going to be able to have child care, so if you have kids, um, we ask you to arrange bi- uh, babysitting, but we would love for you to come out at 6.30. I'm going to be talking about, um, I spent 10 days on the ground in Kyrgyzstan with um, a team that we have there, and uh, it was an enlightening experience for me. Um, I would love to share with you what's happening in the team and, and really what I learned about this trip. And so we'll be going through that this Tuesday night at 6.30, and um, I guarantee you'll be challenged and encouraged if you, if you want to join us, okay? Um, when you come, one word of direction. Uh, I'm going to ask that you park in the public parking across the street over here. Uh, Tuesday night at 6.30, um, many of these buildings are still going to be being used by the lawyers who inhabit them most of the week. And um, they actually pay for their spots. <laughs> we don't. We just use them on the weekend. Um, and, and so on Tuesday night, we don't want to come in and start filling up all the visitor spots and all of the reserve spots. Um, that's not a good neighbor, right? And so I'm going to ask you, if, when you come on Tuesday night, there's, there's public parking right across the street. If you just park over there and walk across the street, um, we'll be more than happy to, to see you then. All right? So that's this Tuesday, 
All right, when I was in high school, um, I liked to skateboard. I spent a lot of time alone. I was kind of a loner. Um, and skateboarding is a great thing to do when you don't have friends, right? Feel sorry for me? No. Um, I lived in, in Southern California in the 80s, and um, unlike, you know, some of you guys that, that, you know, in the 90s and, and 00s, we didn't have skate parks in every corner. I mean, that just, there was one in all of, well, two in all of Southern California, and um, I hit those when I could, but they were far away, and so you'd really just kind of scour your community. And if you could find an empty pool, that was like finding gold. Uh, and it, had, it usually had to be either behind, you know, behind a house where people were gone all day, or even better, a house where it was abandoned, they had just left it. And uh, there was one of those in my community. Um, it was just a backyard pool. D- don't think above-ground plastic thing like we have in the Midwest where you get in the water and you just stand there, right? These are actual pools people had in their yards, cement, right? Curve transitions. They were actually great for skateboarding. And, uh, and so one day in high school, I was on my way to work. I won't tell you where I worked, uh, but I will tell you that I married a girl from Kentucky and I fried chicken. And on my way to work, um, decided I was going to just go hit the bowl, right? I was going to go skate before I went to work. And, um, and so I went there, and apparently there had been a huge party there the night before, and somebody had smashed out the sliding glass door, and there was a bunch of glass down on the bottom of the pool. Um, and I didn't have time, nor did I have the interest of actually trying to sweep it out and clean it, and so I just skated, right? And, and that, you know, no big deal. And so I would, um, you know, just be carving around, and, and not surprising, hit a flat spot in the wall, threw me off my board. I landed in the glass, okay, just rolling, um, I got up, brushed myself off, had some cuts. Um, like, great, let's go to work. And so I went to work and just went to the bathroom, cleaned myself up a little bit, and made some chicken. And um, that's a pleasant thought. And so <laughs> what I found was after a couple of days, these cuts weren't healing. I mean, they were just, and so I had them on my back, I had them on my arms, I had them on my hands, and, um, and, and they were getting kind of infected and swollen and and so, you know, I'm at work one day, and I'm decided I'm going to start picking at them. Well, I start squeezing them and come to find out there's little slivers of glass in there. And so I'm, I'm popping slivers of glass out of my skin. Um, not an incredibly comfortable way to go through your day. Um, and, and as you can guess, it was not an incredibly comfortable way to sleep or to find any rest. Because when you lay down, no matter how you laid, like you're pushing on this stuff, right? It just hurt. And, and so I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't resting. And finally, I'm like, oh, that's... That's why. All right, here's a couple lessons that we can take from that. First of all, you eat fast food at your own risk. <laughs> Seriously, people. Who do you think works there? Um, secondly, secondly, and more importantly, time does not heal all wounds. It only heals clean wounds. Time does not heal all wounds. It only heals clean wounds. And so today... We're going to talk about the cleansing power of grace. And the cleansing power of grace specifically manifests in our experience of giving and receiving forgiveness. You can't rest when you have festering wounds. And you need the grace of forgiveness to wash out the infection of bitterness from your life. If we're going to talk about true rest, deep rest, we have to talk about forgiveness. Because you will not be able to find true, deep rest unless you discover the beauty of the gift of forgiveness. 
And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three things, why we forgive, how we forgive, and who we forgive. And we're going to do that by taking a look at our passage. So first of all, why do we forgive? The simple answer is this, we forgive because we're forgiven. Now, I'm going to have to unpack that. It's, it seems real simple, and, and it is, but it's, it's, a, it's a lot of depth there. So take a look at verse 13 in our passage. Uh, Paul, writing to the Colossians, says, bear with one another, put up with one another. If you're annoying or, you know, personality differences, Democrats, Republicans, whatever, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, in other words, if, if the bearing goes beyond just annoyance to the point where you have actually sinned against me, you have hurt me, you have done something to me, I need to forgive you, right? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. I want to unpack that because really what that comes across, first, we're like, yeah, I get that. I, I got to forgive because I was forgiven, right? So as Christ followers, a lot of times we put that kind of on the level of, of all right, God, you're kind of guilting me here, <laughs> right? I know you did this thing, so now I got to do this thing, right? So I'll, I'll do this thing. And, and it gets really, really hard, right? So let's unpack this a little bit. There's one thing we all have in common, you guys, and it's this, that we all know what it is to need to be forgiven. Everybody in this room knows what it is to need to be forgiven. Every single one of us has incurred a relational debt that we could not pay. You know what that experience is called? When you, when you incur a relational debt that you can't pay? That's called guilt. Guilt is the feeling of sorrow that comes when I know I have hurt someone, I have taken something from someone, I have done something to someone, and I have no ability to pay it back. I have no ability to go fix it. I have no ability to make it right. Guilt is the experience of weight that comes on me when I feel a weight of debt to someone right? And we all know that feeling. We all know that feeling, right? We've all done something that we shouldn't have done to somebody that didn't deserve it to be done to, right? Someone we loved. In fact, a lot of times it's people that closest to us that get to see really the least pleasant side of us, let's be honest, right? The harsh word when you should have offered kindness, the laziness when you should have offered a hand of support, um, the, the, the selfish maneuvering of money or resources when um, you wanted to protect your own interests instead of freeing those things up for the interest of others. Um, we've all been rude, said harsh words, hurt people, and then later, looking back on it, realized we were out of line, right? We were out of line, and that, in fact, hurt somebody, somebody we cared about, somebody that was important to us. And in that moment, we knew there's really nothing you can do to go back. You can't go back and take it back. You can't go back and undo it. You can't go back and fix the wound. You're helpless. And that's guilt. Guilt comes in and, and reminds you of that. Now, maybe something you did, it might be something you didn't do, right? When you should have offered a word of encouragement and you were silent. When you should have offered a word of instruction, when you should have made yourself available, when you should have been fully present, but instead you were distracted by your phone or by your computer or by some inconsequential anxiety that in the moment seemed incredibly important, and you didn't give yourself fully to someone you loved who deeply needed you there in that moment. And we cause pain to people that we love. We all know this experience. And we know that it's a debt we can't pay. 
The bigger the offense, the greater the debt, right? The, the, the more we know we've hurt somebody, the greater the sense of weight that comes over us, the greater the sense of guilt that comes over us, right? And this becomes kind of a weird currency in the economy of relationships, all right? You know anybody who's really good at guilt trips? You know what that is when somebody is able, really good at, at guilt trips? What they're doing is they're basically calling in your debts. They know you owe them. They know that you have, you have in the currency of guilt and relationship, you've hurt them. You've done something wrong. And so they have the ability to manipulate you with the weight of your debt because you can't pay it. And so they have this control over you, this ability to manipulate you, to drive you. And we're all really good at this, right? And what ends up happening is when you owe a debt, you either work really hard to pay it off or you work really hard to run away. You're either going to work really hard to pay it off or you're going to realize it's a debt you can't pay and instead you're going to run away. In fact, that describes many people's relationship with God. They feel this sense of debt, of brokenness in their lives, and they spend it really, really hard. I'm going to be moral. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do these good things. I'm going to, and then maybe, maybe, maybe God will like me, right? Maybe then I'll be able to pay back my debt, right? So they get really religious. They get really self-righteous. They get really whatever, or they just cut and run, right? God's in the rearview mirror. I don't want to, I owe a debt that's too, it's too heavy. I don't want to deal with that, Right? And so you spend your time running. Some of you are running from your families. Some of you emotionally, some of you physically, right? You're moving as far away as you can because you know that there's a weight of guilt, right? It's interesting how the closest relationships often come with the most baggage. What parent doesn't understand the weight of guilt that comes with their kids? Because no parent is everything their kid needs them to be. No parent lives up to all the expectations. No parent is able to do all the right things at all the right times, offer all the right words. No parent measures up. And so every parent feels the weight of guilt. And what kid doesn't feel um, the weight of guilt with their parents? Not living up to their expectations. Not being what they expected us to be. Not Moms are great at guilt, aren't they? And I'm not slamming moms. But the reality is the the closer and more intimate the relationship, the more keenly we feel our sense of debt. And who do we owe more to than our moms, right? And and so moms, even the best of moms, completely unintentionally sometimes do things that fill us with guilt because we know we don't measure up. We don't meet all the expectations, right? And so guilt becomes the currency of of this really weird economy. And pretty soon we're, we're, we're measuring, right? Who's done what to who? Where's the offense? Where's the, and we're keeping track. Closer the relationship, the more powerful the power, right? Letting your boss down isn't going to fill you with a sense of guilt anywhere near as much as letting your spouse down or letting your kids down or letting your parents down, somebody that you truly care for, right? The closer the tie, the more intimate the relationship, the more there's an expectation of trust, and the higher the debt that we incur when we don't live up to expectations. Forgiveness is the gift that frees us from that debt. Forgiveness is the gift that frees us from that debt. We can't pay it. You can't go back and undo it. You can't go back and unsay it. You can't go back and, and unlive it. 
You can't. And so the person who's in debt is completely at the mercy in that sense, in that relationship to the one who holds the debt. Forgiveness is the thing that we need because ultimately it releases us from that debt. And there's something incredibly powerful when somebody you've hurt looks at you and says, I release you. I forgive you. That's so much more powerful than looking at somebody and saying, oh, it's okay. Right? That's usually our way of saying, I'm not going to deal with it right now, but I might call the dead in later. We may not be done with this. It's okay. But it might come up later, right? To forgive someone is to release someone from their debt. And here's the thing, you guys. I've been talking in terms of human relationships because that's what we know most intimately and we know the dynamics of our daily lives in human relationships. But this applies to our relationship with God as well. We were created in the image of God for intimacy with God. God shaped our souls to respond to His love. He designed us for relationship. We see that in the opening chapters of the Bible. When you go to the beginning of the story, what you find is Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the evening with God. God, the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things, is chilling with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, right? Like, I'm just going to show up and walk with you guys. I got nothing better to do. You know why? Because He designed them for relationship. He designed them for intimacy. He took joy in their joy. He took joy in their basking in the goodness of His presence. There is no closer tie than a human to His Creator. There is no more intimate relationship. And the reality is that every single one of us have rejected Him. Our first parents rejected Him. We were born in that rebellion, and we've acted in that rebellion. Last week, we, we took a look at this idea of idols, right? Idols are things that we look to that aren't God to be God for us, to do for us what only God can do. When we look to our performance or to our relationships or to a certain experience of comfort, when we look to these things to do for us what only God can do, it's like being in a marriage and looking at your spouse and saying to them, I don't love you, but I want the benefits of relationship with you. It is a betrayal of intimacy. It is a betrayal of trust. We have rejected God. That is an act of cosmic treason for which we are accountable. It is an act of relational um, or relational tra- uh, traitors. And as a result, we owe him a debt, a debt we can never pay. Now, the good news, of course, is that our God is a debt-forgiving God. Our God is a forgiving God. He is so motivated by love that He is motivated to forgive. So the question then becomes, how does God forgive? And the reality is that the answer is not real pretty and beautiful at the same time. He forgives by paying the debt. He forgives by not just ignoring the debt, but by actually paying it. And the way you pay debt in relationships is by suffering pain. You have to absorb the pain. You have to take the pain that's been inflicted on you and say to the person, I will not inflict pain on you in return. I will absorb this pain. I will suffer the debt, and I will free you from the consequences 
Take a look at this quote. This is from uh, John Stott. I reference this quite often. I thought I'd go ahead and throw the quote up there this time. This is from the cross of Christ. It says, The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for us. We put ourselves where God deserves to be. God puts Himself where we deserve to be. How does God forgive sin? He becomes our sin. God became flesh and lived the life we should have lived, went to the cross and died the death we deserve to die. As our perfect substitute, Jesus, the Holy Son of God, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God forgave the only way anyone ever forgives by absorbing all the pain. He suffered that we might be set free to release us from our debt. So how great was our debt? You want to know how great your debt was to God? All you got to do is look at the payment because the payment was only adequate to the debt. It was so great it required the Son of God, the Holy One, to die for us in our place. Our treason was so serious It required the author of life to become a creature that he might taste death, that we might be forgiven. So why do we forgive? We forgive because we've been forgiven. Christ follower, you need to understand the weight of God's love. You need to see how beautiful His forgiveness is. And in seeing that, it'll change you and free you. See, no one owes us a debt as great as the debt we owed God. I'm not saying you haven't suffered. I'm not saying you haven't been hurt. I'm saying no one has owed you a debt as great as the debt you owed God. And God paid your debt to forgive you and free you. And as those who have received grace, what he's saying is we need to give that grace away. Grace is not given to you to hold, to treasure, to trap. Grace is given to you not for you to claim but to give away because grace finds its power in movement. He gives us the grace of forgiveness and then says, I will free you as you move out of forgiveness to others. Now we know it's one thing to say, okay, I get this, God, I get this. I'm supposed to forgive, and I'll do it. <laughs> but it gets a lot more complicated than that, doesn't it? You guys ever been this? You've walked this path? You've been down this road? You know where it goes, right? It's like, yes, Lord, I get it. You told me to forgive, so I'm going to forgive, right? And so you're like, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to release this person, and then I'm going to walk away and never think about it again. How'd that work for you? Not real good. I already know, right? I've been down that path myself. So, so how do we forgive? We know why we forgive, because we've been forgiven. So how do we forgive? If we're going to be able to forgive, we're going to have to learn to work from our forgiveness. If we're going to be able to forgive, we're going to have to be able to do it from a place where we deeply have tasted our own forgiveness. Take a look at verse 12. At the beginning of this passage, there is a command. Paul says, put on then, 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, right? So put on these character qualities, right? Compassionate hearts, kindness, these things. But before He tells us what to do, it's interesting, before He tells us what to do, He tells us who we are. Before He says, this is what you're supposed to do, He says, I'm going to remind you first who you are. You are God's chosen ones. You are holy and beloved. That's who you are. I'm going to remind you of that because it's essential for you to know who you are before you'll be able to do what I'm asking you to do. You have to know who you are. Now, think about this for a minute because I want you to think about it. Chosen ones, what that means is that God chose us. He's the initiator, not the responder, right? He's not, a, he's not waiting for us to find Him attractive. He's not just sitting back, you know, like a, a beggar on the side of the road, just kind of waiting and saying, I hope you look at me. That, that's not God. God is the great initiator. He is the source of all beauty and joy. And, and the reason that you have responded to Him is because He chose you and said, you're going to respond to me. And, and He has offered that to everyone, basically saying, look, believe in me, right? And I, I've chosen you. So there's security. God's not a responder. He's an initiator. And in that security, He has declared us to be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Think about those two words. The word holy, it's a word that means set apart completely for the glory of God. Set apart completely for the, for the glory of God. What he's saying is, is, if you're a follower of Christ, when God sees you, it's like you never sinned. And you're like, yeah, but Steve, you don't know what I did last night. If you're a follower of Christ, when God looks at you, He sees you as holy. Because you're not covered with your works, you're covered with Christ's. You're not covered with your performance, you are covered with Christ's. If you are a believer in Christ, your record was left on the cross. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and when He rose again, your sin debt was left behind. Right? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He covers us with the very righteousness of Christ. If you could see yourself like God sees you, Christ follower, if you could see yourself right now like God sees you, what would you see? You'd see glory. You are holy because God has declared it. He has earned it. He bought it and He gave it to you as a gift. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ because Christ took the full debt payment of your sin. You are holy. And what you're learning to do in this life is become what you've already been declared to be. He's already earned your future. He will take you there. You're not fully there yet, right? You're not once what, what, what you once were, but you're not what you will once be. But God doesn't look at you and see you in that transition and say, I judge you or reject you or I don't like you or I'm not sure if I'm going to... He looks at you and He sees you as He will make you. And He has paid the price. You are holy. You are a cosmic traitor. You're now holy. Your greatest offense has been completely wiped clean. And not just the removal of the offense, but a whole new record has been given to you. You've been given the very record of Christ. 
right? You're not just absent from offense, right? God doesn't just come in and say, okay, now I'm indifferent to you. He now looks at you and says, you are glorious to me because you are covered in my glory. You're holy. But what's beautiful, you guys, is we're not just holy. We're beloved. What that means is is that we're not just given a position of holiness. We're given a position of intimacy. We're not just given a pardon. We're brought back into the family. Follower of Christ, you are chosen by God, holy and beloved. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ, and you are invited to the table of Christ as a family member, as a son, as a daughter. God looks at you and says, you are my delight because you are covered with my son in whom all my delight rests. You guys, this is just a word about the gospel. This is why we don't just believe things about Jesus, right? Jesus was a historical figure. He lived a real life. He died a real death. There was a real resurrection. It's a historical figure in a historical story. It's the God telling, uh, the God of all history telling his story through human story, right? It is the true story of the universe. But to become a Christ follower, we don't simply believe things to be true. We don't just simply accept things to be true, right? We don't just believe in a set of, of propositional truths. We, we believe in a person, right? I don't just know things about my wife. I know my wife. And the benefit of relationship doesn't come from me knowing things about my wife. The, the benefit of relational uh, uh, joy comes from, from being intimate, right, in relationship with my wife, just like any human relationship. And God is a God of relationship. To believe in Jesus is not simply to believe things about Him, but to trust Him as the true hero of the story. To see that Jesus not only died to save sinners, but He died to save me. It was, it was an act of love an intimate act in which He invites me into relationship with Him. It's not abstract. It's not out there somewhere. It is intensely personal. He died to save me. He died to make me holy. He died so that I might once again be in the circle of the beloved, invited to the table in a celebration of love. And when I understand this, you guys, when I really get this, when, when grace grips my heart and I see what I've been forgiven of and I see the incredible benefit that Christ has earned for me, it changes me. It, it, it alters me. I have a new identity. I have a new name. I have a new motivation. I have been forgiven. I have been received. I have been declared right and one of the family. And that changes a person. Jesus told a story during his ministry, his lifetime, where, where he, he described um, a guy who was given, who had a, an, an incredible debt, a debt he could never pay. And if you were to take the, the monetary figures that Jesus gives and translate it to modern times, it would be at minimum in the millions and potentially in the billions. The idea was that this guy was in so much debt, it would bankrupt not just him, but it would completely destroy his heritage. Because in that culture, you didn't just lose your debt at death, right? It went from your family to your kids to your kids to your kids. His family was going to become a family of indentured servants. 
because his debt was so great. It completely destroyed his heritage in life. And he went in to the man who owned the debt and he begged him and said to him, I cannot pay my debt. It's too great. And the man was moved with compassion and said to him, your debt is forgiven. All of it. I have removed all of it. And that man left that room filled with joy. Filled with joy. And then he walked across the street and he saw somebody who owed him money. The guy owed him like what was equivalent to about $10 today. And he said to him, you owe me 10 bucks. I want my money right now. And the guy said, I don't have it. Will you give me some time and I'll get it? He said, no. And he sent him to prison to become an indentured servant to work off his debt. The reason Jesus told this story was not to guilt us and say, look, you've been forgiven a great debt, you better go forgive others. He was telling this story to highlight how stupid, how actually unthinkable something like that is. You've been forgiven a billion dollars, you're going to worry about 10? Really? Are you not going to be undone by the grace that has been shown to you? Is that not going to unleash a generosity of your soul because someone has been generous with you? It would be inhuman. It would be evil to not respond to that kind of generosity without being changed. That's the point of the story. People who get grace are changed by grace. And that's why Paul starts by reminding us who we are before he tells us what to do. It's not about going and doing the right things. It's about allowing grace to change you so that you can become free to do it as a response and not as a performance. Because I've been forgiven, I forgive. It's a simple concept, but far from easy. That's why we have to put on our new identity. We have to remind ourselves continually who we are in Christ before we can do what we're supposed to do or be who we're supposed to be in Christ. So what Paul is saying is this, you guys. Stop acting like you're the person you used to be. Stop behaving like, like who you used to be before you believed in Jesus. You're not that person anymore. You don't have that status anymore. You know, before you came to Christ, um, you were an accountant. We all were. We were sin accountants. And as sin accountants, what we did is we kept really close tabs on who owed us what and what we owed to others, right? So we kept these ledgers. And in those ledgers, we kept a list of all the offenses that had been done against us. Well, this person said this, and this person did this, and well, that person on Christmas, and this person, blah, blah, blah. And like good sin accountants who are also sinful, our side of the ledger tends to shrink. And other people's side of the ledger tends to grow, right? So our debts tend to get smaller, And we see our offenses as less and less offensive. And other people's offenses get bigger and bigger. And the debts get heavier and heavier, right? Guilt is the currency of of the relational economy um, when we are driven by, by sin, right? We use it to position ourselves. We use it to protect ourselves. We use it to measure ourselves. We use it to, to, to make ourselves feel better about others. We use it to kind of manipulate and control situations. You guys, listen to me. That's not who we are anymore. You are not a sin accountant. You are holy and beloved, follower of Christ. 
That's not who you are anymore. We are not measured by what we've done. We are holy and beloved. We are not measured by what has been done to us. We are holy and beloved. We no longer have to sit in the seat of the judge condemning others to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We are holy and beloved. To forgive, then, is not something we do for the person that owes us a debt. And it isn't even really something we do for God. We don't do it for God. We do it in response to God. We do it because we've given up the seat of the judge. It's not our seat to sit in. That's God's seat. And God sat in that seat over me, and He dispensed grace upon grace upon grace. And I release my debts to Him. Because He's not just my judge, He's the judge of the whole world. And as a result, I don't need to compare myself with others because He says I am holy. And I don't need to condemn others because He says I am beloved. And I am able to release the debt of others who have hurt me because I have been released. And I can trust God to be God. Now, the, the command, put on, is, is present imperative. Little little English grammar for you there. Um, present imperative. What it means, it's a command that never stops. <laughs> put it on and keep putting it on. It's an ever-present command. Put it on and keep putting it on. Put on your identity in Christ and keep putting it on. You know why? Because every time your wound hurts, you have to put on your identity in Christ again so that you can forgive. You guys have already realized, right? You can't just forgive somebody. You can't just say, I'm done with this and walk away. You have to forgive them and you have to keep forgiving them. You know why? Because it takes a while for the wound to heal. And while the wound is healing, it'll keep getting bumped. It'll keep hurting. Things will happen to remind you of how deeply you've been hurt. And in that moment, you once again have a choice. I will either self-protect, become self-righteous and full of self-pity. I will fill this wound with, with the, the, um, the bacteria and, and the filth of bitterness. Or I'm going to embrace grace. And remind myself that I am not defined by this wound. I am holy and beloved. And as a recipient of grace, I can give grace. And in giving grace, our wounds are cleaned. And they slowly and progressively heal. So why do we forgive? We forgive because we were forgiven. How do we forgive? We forgive by, by living deeply in who God says we are. Going deep into our new identity with Christ. In other words, just walking in faith and trusting that what God says about me is true, even if it doesn't feel true. Even, even if I don't see it at, at present, at practice in my life. If God says to me, I am holy and beloved, I by faith receive that and say, I am holy and beloved. And I will act as one who is both forgiven and brought back into the family. I put it on and I keep putting it on. So who do we forgive? Well, to find rest, real rest, deep rest, we have to forgive others and we have to learn how to forgive ourselves. 
We have to forgive, forgive others because they're jerks. We're surrounded by jerks. We're jerks, right? We live in a world of, of selfish, broken people. That's reality, right? And, and people will hurt you and you will hurt others. We have to learn to forgive others because people are going to hurt us and they're going to owe us debts. And I don't want to minimize this because some of these debts are huge. Some of these debts are huge. Some of these debts, for some of you, go all the way back to your childhood. Where the people that were closest to you, who should have protected you and loved you, betrayed you and hurt you. Those are deep, painful wounds. The gospel is sufficient even for you. You can be healed. Now, it might take community. It may take people around you who love you, who are going to speak the truth of the gospel into your life and keep reminding you of the truth of the gospel as you work your way through this. For some of you, it may take counseling. We're a pro-counseling church, as long as it's gospel-centered. People coming to bear with, this, with our research into human psychology, but also our understanding of the depth of the gospel and helping people unpack some of the stuff that's happened, right? Dudes, you're not too old, right? Some of you are going to have to go back and deal with your daddy wounds. I'm just being honest, right? There's a lot there that we have to unpack and deal with and look at so that we can re-enter into those relationships and into those experiences, not defined by what was done by, uh, to us, but defined by who God says we are. Some of the wounds are incredibly painful, incredibly deep. Now, here's the challenge, you guys, and here's the temptation. When we've been deeply hurt, the temptation is to start defining ourselves by our pain. And our identity is not, I am God's son, I am God's daughter, holy and beloved. Our identity becomes, I'm a victim. I was hurt. And that identity becomes precious to us in some ways. We define ourselves by our pain. You find yourself fantasizing about getting vengeance, getting back at the person who hurt you. Not always. Sometimes there's a sick twist and you fantasize about getting back in their good favor. Once again, having their affection. But you're consumed by it. It defines your thinking. You know you're there, by the way, when you find yourself comparing your suffering with other people's suffering to find how it measures up. You're constantly comparing your story of suffering to other people's story of suffering to see how you rank on the, on the ladder of pain. And you minimize other people's pain when it seems like it's less than yours, and you become threatened by people who have pain that's greater than yours. It becomes a weird twisted sense of competition because when your identity is your pain, your pain becomes your pride. It's enslaving and it's deadly. And like an infected wound, it simply festers. When you do that, what you're doing is closing up the wound with all the bacteria with the glass still embedded. It will never heal. It will never get better. There's no healing, no relief, no solution, only increased bitterness, pain, self-pity, and anxiety. 
Christ follower, you need to put your identity in Christ. Here's the deal. All pain hurts. All pain hurts. For the person who's suffering it, it doesn't matter how it compares to anybody else's. It just hurts. Right? And holding the debt is like refusing to clean out the wound, refusing to remove the glass. It only hurts you. See, that's the irony is there's no way to call this debt in. You you can't in any way make the person who hurt you actually pay for the debt. All you do is increase your pain. It robs you of rest and joy and peace. Listen to me, you need to forgive. Who do we need to forgive? We need to forgive others. We need to release them. We need to forgive them. Yeah, but Steve, they don't deserve it. I know, neither did you. Yeah, but they haven't repented. You didn't repent when Jesus died and rose again. Yeah, but they're unsafe. I'm not saying you need to get back in relationship with them. I'm not talking about reconciliation, right? You don't put yourself in a situation where you continue to be abused or hurt, but you do forgive. You release them because in releasing them, you release yourself. You release them because in releasing them, you honor the grace that God has poured out in your life. And you run instead of to your pain, to your Savior. And you do it. Forgive. Now, I tell you, it's not just the big offenders. When we think about this, a lot of times we run right to the, the big offenders, right? We all tend to have one or two people in our lives that have caused us the most pain. And those are the people, when we think of forgiveness, that we wrestle the most with. And what we're talking about here is not simply moving into forgiveness with the big offenders. What we're talking about is a whole new way of life. It's a whole new way of relating with people in life. Not, not just one or two specific people. When he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, he's talking about everyday, normal life. It's a new way of embracing life, a way that is informed and driven by grace. And your experience of the outpouring of the love of God hmm. that revolutionizes the way you interact with others. It changes the way you relate to that guy at work who tends to take credit for your work. It changes the way you relate to the person at the grocery store who likes to cut in line in front of you. It changes the way you relate to the rude driver on the road who likes to give you the one-finger salute, right? It's amazing how on the road we just completely, you know, it's like we feel such freedom. You cut me off. You deserve to die, right? I mean, it's like we need to let the grace of God inform everything. All of our life. It's not just what you do in isolated relationships. It's a whole new way of living. Because you have a whole new identity in Christ. And you don't just put on that identity when you need it. (laughs) Because you need it all the time. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. 
We need to remind ourselves every day, in fact, every moment, that I am no longer who I once was. I am no longer an accountant of sin. I am holy and beloved. I am who God says I am. And that frees me to forgive others. But it also frees me to forgive myself. Here's the deal. Some of you are holding a debt that God has released. I've sat down with people and had this conversation numerous times where they look across the table at me and what they say to me is, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. That sounds really noble, but it is twisted. That is not the language of someone who is holy and beloved. It is the language of somebody who is a sin accountant and a particularly prideful one because he thinks or she thinks her accounting of sin is better than God's. I have a higher standard than God. So yeah, God might forgive me, but I can't. Do you see how sick and twisted and prideful that is? When God says you are holy and beloved because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for you to say, no, it wasn't, is an act of insanity and pride and defiance against God. If God's the one who justifies, who can condemn? If God says, the sacrifice of my son was sufficient, I am not only satisfied, but I love you and I pour out my favor upon you. You are holy and beloved. Who are you to contradict God? That's not rooted in a too uh, low view of yourself. That's not rooted in humility. That is rooted in pride. I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek reconciliation, forgiveness if you've hurt somebody. You can never use this as an excuse to simply hurt people and then walk away and say, well, at least I'm forgiven by God. If you're doing that, you don't understand grace. What I am saying is that when you sin against people, you listen to God first which is you are forgiven, now operate out of that forgiveness. Go back into that relationship as one who is holy and beloved, not driven by guilt, not driven by shame, not driven by a sense that you can do something that is better than Christ. Be freed in Christ to come back into that relationship in the grace that God has given you and trust that God will bring reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing to that person's hurt. To find rest, to find deep soul rest, we need to drink deeply of our forgiveness. And in drink, drinking deeply of our forgiveness, we will be freed to forgive others. Because what we're doing is unleashing the power of grace. Grace is like electricity. Electricity only works when it travels from point A to point B. It has power and movement. It has no power when it's alone and it has no movement. Grace is like that. It's not given to us to simply put into a vault. Well, at least I'm forgiven by God and I'm going to hold on to that. You lose the power, the experience of grace. Grace is, is at its most powerful when we receive it from God and we extend it to others. Because as grace travels through us like electricity, it lights us up. It transforms our souls and sets us free. As those who are holy and beloved... It allows us to experience the cleansing power of grace. And it will heal your wounds, and it will set you free. 
and you will, to a greater and greater and greater degree, hear the voice of your loving Father saying to you, I chose you, you are holy, and you are my beloved. You guys, we're going to go into time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen, and during this time, I'm going to ask you to pray and, and just let the Spirit speak to you and lead you. If you have things you want to pray about, we're going to have leaders at the back of the room that are available to pray with you and for you. We're not going to ask you to divulge anything or share anything you don't want to share, but we are going to invite you into community. And if God is stirring your heart, don't be so prideful or so afraid that you don't step up and say, I want prayer. We would love to pray with you and for you. Let me pray for us. We're going to go into our time of response. We'll, we'll share communion in a moment. Father God, I thank you that you are a forgiving God. That in your righteousness and in your holiness, you did not separate yourself from us, stand distant from us, judge us, which would have been your right and would have reflected your holiness and your righteousness. But Lord, in your love, you did the unthinkable. You became one of us that you might die for all of us. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for myself that our hearts truly will be undone by this. That we'll be changed. This won't be something we simply know about. That you will be somebody that we know, deeply know, and are changed by loving you and being loved by you. I pray for my friends that are struggling to forgive people that have hurt them. Lord, you know their pain more intimately than, than probably they know it themselves. You bled, you died, you suffered so that you could enter into their suffering and free them to life. Meet them where they are. Show them the beauty of your grace. I pray for my friends that are struggling with whether or not they even know you or believe in you. I pray, Lord, that uh, you'll just make yourself known to them in a way only.